welcome to another episode of Public Problems. In this episode, I have a conversation with Raymond Robertson on free trade. We talk specifically about the North Atlantic Free Trade Alliance, NAFTA, in this episode, but we also talk more broadly about the costs and benefits of free trade. Raymond highlights that the benefits of free trade are often very dispersed across the marketplace, and so we don't always see and internalize the, the all the benefits. However, cost of free cha- trade are often in pockets and in specific industries and geographic areas, and these are real harms that are being done to people in those communities. And so while free trade on net might bring a lot of benefit to society, we have to be cognizant of and paying attention to those that are harmed by free trade policies and come up with ways to compensate them so that free so that the benefits of free trade continue to outweigh the costs. This is a very interesting conversation I think that Raymond and I have and I hope you find it interesting as well. Thanks for listening along. Welcome. Today I'm with Raymond Robertson. Raymond is a professor and holder of the Helen and Roy Rue Chair in Economics and Government in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. And he's also a research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany. Raymond's widely published in the field of labor economics and international economics. He also currently chairs the U.S. Department of Labor's National Advisory Committee for Labor Provisions on the U.S. Free Trade Agreements and is a member of the Center for Global Development's Advisory Board. Welcome, Raymond. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so I just want to jump right into it today. Uh, Raymond and I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, free trade as the main topic today. Um, Raymond has a whole body of work on this. I'll post his uh, CV, uh, his curriculum vitae, so you can see some of his works there. Um, and so instead of focusing on a specific piece you've done, I want to talk more broadly about free trade and its effects. Um, I think this is particularly relevant today, given the last campaign cycle. In the last campaign, uh, presidential campaign, President Trump uh, ran a campaign against free trade, and there were even hints of this on the in the Democratic campaigns as well, kind of targeting free trade agreements. And President Trump called NAFTA, the um, North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, in particular, uh, calling it the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. Uh, this is also all going on at a time when I think American workers are feeling some real challenges. There hasn't been a lot of wage growth. And so it seems like free trade agreements have been the target of some of this angst. Um, so what's, what's going on here, Raymond? Is NAFTA really to blame for these worker complaints? Are there other factors? So uh, maybe you could just lay out how we would hope free trade to, would work, and then what some of the empirical evidence for the impact uh, NAFTA in particular has had on U.S. workers. Sure, Justin. These are really great questions, and they're on the minds of Americans all across the country. And so it's really important that we're talking about them, and I congratulate you on raising this topic. So thank you very much. Free trade is very controversial. It's controversial for a number of reasons. It's interesting if you go way back into even academic trade theory predicts that one of the key features of opening up to trade or signing free trade agreements is that there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And in general, economists tell us that the winners will benefit, the losers will lose, but the gains to those winners will probably be bigger than the losses to the losers. 
one of the things we've noticed with recent free trade agreements in particular, but also trade generally, is that the losses to workers have been very concentrated in particular areas. So you go to places like Ohio, you go to Michigan, uh, even in Pennsylvania, you see people who are directly competing with foreigners to produce steel or cars or even apparel in, in sort of in the southern parts uh, of the east. And what happens is when imports come in at a lower price, Consumers all across the country benefit. Everybody going to Walmart or Target or Sears, they get the benefit of lower prices, which allows people to have a higher standard of living. They get to buy more stuff that they want. They get to have two outfits instead of one, or they get to have a change of clothes for the weekend or whatever. And these are the benefits that often don't get mentioned as a result uh, in the free trade debate because they're very subtle and you don't usually go to Target or Kmart or wherever, Walmart, and say, oh, you know, I got these clothes on sale because we have this trade agreement with Mexico or somebody else. No one ever says that. And so those benefits go unnoticed. But the costs are very localized. And when people lose their jobs, that is a very significant cost, both both in your budget, of course, but also psychologically. And it's very traumatic to lose your job. And a lot of times what we've seen is that even though these losses are very concentrated, other parts of the country like the West and the South and Southwest really benefit from exporting to other countries. But people don't relocate from those hard hit areas to those areas that are booming because relocation is very expensive and you don't want to leave your culture and heritage. You don't want to leave your neighborhoods. And because those costs of moving are so high, people don't really see the benefits taking place in other parts of the country, which leaves people very frustrated and therefore very angry and willing to vote against the trade agreements. So, so it seems like it's not that free trade agreements aren't without their costs. And so one of the benefits is that in the U.S., for example, we can import goods that are cheaper for the entire economy. So some things that will come in, they'll be cheaper than if there weren't free trade agreements. But as part of these free trade agreements, it might mean that in some industries, what we're importing in cheaper is going to compete with what we have here at home. So what are some of the, coal is one of the ones I know that was mentioned in the campaign. What are some of the industries, based on your knowledge, that probably did take a hit from free trade agreements, in particular maybe NAFTA? Sure, so a couple of them that got hit especially hard especially at the very beginning in terms of trade with Mexico, were apparel and electronics. So what you saw is, especially here in Texas, but in other places, Levi's and other companies move their production out of the United States into Mexico. Uh, and we also started importing a lot more from China uh, starting around 2000, 2001, when China enters the WTO. And we really see China's apparel production take off. And what you've seen then is that in the United States, there's very little actual clothing being sewn here in the United States. You can find specialty shops, American Apparel, whatever American Eagle Outfitters sometimes will have some. Uh, but it's very, very rare because the apparel making clothes is so what we say is labor intensive that you basically just need to pay wages. And in China, they were earning you know less than a dollar a day in many cases. And it's just a lot cheaper for the big companies that make apparel to go start buying from these other countries. Uh, that was apparel's one. Mm -hmm. Another one, of course, is electronics. You notice that I don't think Zenith produces any TVs here anymore. Uh, and so a lot of our consumer electronics are being made in China or in Mexico and other areas as well. 
Um, it, basically, when you think of what types of goods, it's the type of things that involve a lot of hands-on work and a lot of labor uh, or repetitive tasks that tend to be the first to go as a result of international trade. And why, why is it in particular that the ones that are more labor-intensive are the first ones to go? And that basically is basically because wages here in the United States are so much higher. So if you have to pay 10 workers to make a particular garment and you have a choice between paying them $10 an hour or $1 a day, it just makes a lot more sense for the company, for the corporation, to start buying from those producers that are producing at $1 a day. Uh, if you are talking about things like actually, you know, the heavier industries like steel, aircraft, spacecraft, uh, even ordnance, missiles, that type of thing, we specialize in those because they're a lot more technology intensive, they need a lot more education, they need more machines to make them, so they're much more precise, a lot more precision manufacturing. Uh, requires more skilled labor, higher wage labor, and those are the types of things we specialize in and export to the rest of the world. So one of the uh, industries that was mentioned a lot throughout the campaign trail and then has remained kind of in discussion uh, under the new administration is the energy industry, in particular sort of coal. It, it, I notice this isn't one you kind of mention. Um, is there, and also I guess manufacturing of vehicles was one from like the Midwestern area that was concerned to voters. So the ones that I remember people being most worked up about were coal jobs and uh, 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 producing vehicles, and the manufacturing for producing vehicles. So were those two as affected by that or is that, go, is that more a consequence of some other uh, feature of the economy? Well, Mexico is not producing any coal, right? So Mexico has oil, they have natural gas, they're not a big coal producer. We're not competing with Mexico for coal or energy. I actually think it's really interesting. Our hearts go out to the coal miners, right? That's a sector that's been hit really hard, but it's been hit hard for a number of reasons, probably not really related to trade. So number one, there's been a technological shift away from coal, fracking, natural gas, other sources of energy, even nuclear, wind, renewable sources, cleaner energy, quote unquote, has made people substitute away from coal for a number of reasons. It's probably not trade. Uh, and secondly, uh, I've heard this, and I haven't actually verified it myself, but I've heard somebody say that uh, there's more people working at Sears than work in the coal industry. And the retail industry is getting hit really hard right now because of a number of technological changes that are taking place in retail. More people are buying online, fewer are going to the stores. And so those retail workers are really taking hit because of changes in technology. And if you actually take a step back and you compare the effects of trade versus the effects of technology and the overall economy, one of the things that I think there's a general consensus among economists is that trade actually explains very little of the suffering of the American worker today. Most of it is due to these changes in technology, changes in the way we buy things, changes in the way we make things. We're much more efficient. We have many more machines. We substitute more towards robotics. And those have put a lot more pressure on the American worker than trade itself has. So if it's not really free trade that's causing the, the, the problem, what are, what are some types of uh, policy tools we can tinker with to help these workers, because as you as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, it is true that there are cost relates, concentrated costs to certain industries, and you mentioned apparel, and you mentioned um, electronics. But these other industries are also feeling a little, a bit of a squeeze, coal to be one. So, what types of things should citizens be wanting or hoping for to help protect our workers, given that? 
it doesn't seem like it's as much free trade, although there is some cost associated with free trade. So, so I, I guess to back up, what is knowing that there would be cost to some industries as a result of free trade? What could what could the economy doing? What could the government doing? What can workers be doing to help buttress against or to help uh, prepare against some of those those actual costs that do come with free trade? Well, it's great in 2017 that we're having this conversation. I think it's worth mentioning that this is the same conversation people had in the 1940s and the 1950s when we were trying to rebuild Europe or rebuilding Japan and people were worried about imports coming in. So these are not at all new issues. What the United States government historically has done to try and help workers is to implement a program called Trade Adjustment Assistance. And oftentimes this involves an extension of unemployment benefits, sometimes even doubling from 26 weeks to 52 weeks in some cases. It involves money for training for people to go back to school to get different skills so that they can make the transition. And in general, this is, I believe, the right idea so that we can give people support to move into other areas or supplement their income while they're searching, while they're retooling. But historically, most people aren't big fans of the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program. And I think there's, there's two reasons why people don't like this program. Number one, historically, people don't feel like it's been as effective as you'd want it to be. Even though we have these programs, people still suffer as a result and they're not getting enough support. So on the one hand, you could argue that the program hasn't been very successful because it hasn't been given enough resources. It hasn't been really funded enough to do the kind of job we would expect it to be, or at a minimum, to alleviate the pain people have felt from losing their jobs. So it might be underfunded. But the second part is, uh, I think there's a very significant resistance throughout the country for government support programs in general. And when you talk to people who are not affected from trade, I'm always shocked, but a lot of times you hear this argument that, look, I lost my job uh, making typewriters because they came along with computers and that's just a technological change. That's the way the capitalist market works. If we're not gonna subsidize those people who lost their jobs from the typewriter industry, why should we subsidize people who are losing their jobs because of trade, right? It, why, why would we do that? And I think whether or not you agree with that point, the fact that that sentiment in the United States of America is so strong has limited the funding that's gone to trade adjustment assistance. And I think we have the resources, the gains have been pretty significant overall from trade. If you look at the savings per customer, et cetera, multiplied by 300 million customers and consumers, the, the gains have been really significant, but we haven't had the political will to help compensate the losers adequately. And as a result of our lack of political will to compensate the losers, we get all this backlash. And that actually puts the gains to consumers nationwide at risk. That puts everybody at risk because of the backlash coming, for example, from the current administration. So that, that maybe how it's one thing that would happen, but what if we turn our backs on free trade? I mean, there's a, lot, a large portion of the population thinks that's what we should do. You hear sort of American first rhetoric. So if we start a, if we turn towards protectionism and away from free trade, is there a consensus sort of in the economist community about what would happen to our own economy here in the US if we turned our backs on free trade? Absolutely. One of the first things that's going to happen if we were to turn our backs on free trade 
was that you're going to see higher prices at the stores. I don't care if you're talking about Mexican avocados or Mexican beer or any of the vegetables that are coming in from Mexico or any of the products, your consumer products coming in from China, Japan, other places in the world. The prices are going to go way up, which means people are going to have less of them. So if you value, you know, your fruits and vegetables, your diet, uh, if you value kind of the toys you play with, you're going to have fewer of those. And and some people would argue that maybe we should have fewer toys and fewer vegetables. Maybe we should just have less stuff because we have too much stuff as it is. And that might be a fair argument. I don't think most people feel that way. Uh, and as a result, we're going to have less stuff. And, and secondly, I think, and this is more subtle, that is that there's been a number of studies that try to figure out what do producers do. We're talking about the factories, factory owners, the managers when they're faced with higher wages. The costs of these goods are gonna go up. We're gonna, sure, we'll hire more people to some degree, I don't know how many more, but we'd hire more people to start producing the stuff we'd want domestically. But the costs would be a lot higher, we'd be demanding less, so we wouldn't get as much of an increase in employment as you'd want. But what we do notice is that when the wages do go up or when firms are forced to pay more for wages, they start to automate. And this is true on the farm. This is true at McDonald's. When you raise the minimum wage, you might see more of the self-checkout machines. They're going to automate. So I think that this idea that we could go back to uh, very high employment by just making everything ourselves is a little bit misguided in the sense that I don't think it takes into account the automation and the reluctance of firms to pay the higher wages. So so make sure I'm kind of hearing you right. So if one of the one of the certain impacts or one of the things we predict with some reasonable confidence is that if we abandon free trade, we'd have to pay higher wages for things, which was one of the benefits of having free trade is substituting towards lower cost labor. Higher prices. For, yeah. Uh, higher yep. prices at the stores, regardless yep. of what store you're at. And so as a function of having to pay higher wages from the talking about from the producer side, yep. one one concern there is the same kind of concern that you, you hear people discussing when talking about the minimum wage. It would force uh, the cost of labor up and thus maybe re, uh, causing companies to choose automation more over workers where possible. Yeah, I think automation is very attractive to firms and when possible, they're going to try and find the cheapest way to produce and if faced with higher wages, chances of automation are pretty high. And we've seen that in lots and lots of examples. So going back, I guess, to uh, sticking with specifically NAFTA, I know that President Trump has had some conversations or some attempts at renegotiating NAFTA is yeah. something that is talked about. Um, if if those efforts move forward and they're, and they're serious efforts, what pieces of NAFTA would be worth revisiting to try to improve? I mean, you mentioned uh, not have, uh, funding the trade adjustment assistance, but are there other features of NAFTA that if, if they're gonna open this box up, that might be actually useful or benefits gained from, from tweaking parts of NAFTA? Yeah, when you actually look at the Trump administration wish list for what they want to include in the NAFTA negotiations, it's really, really an interesting list. A lot of it comes from the side of organized labor, saying that we would like the labor provisions that were basically included as a side agreement in NAFTA, we want those fully incorporated. Furthermore, we want labor provisions in the trade agreement that are more like those saw in the TPP. Uh, and so that's one thing we could expect to see maybe revisited. Uh, another thing I think that's 
also on the table is something called domestic content requirements. So one of the questions that's fun to ask at parties is what is an American good? When you look at your your Ford. Those must be your parties, Raymond. <laughs> Those are my parties. That's right. These are people I hang out with. That's what we talk about. Um, that and AM football. That's the other thing. Those are the two things to talk about. Oh, yeah. AM football. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of look at your Ford car, right? I, I toured the, uh, back when they were making the Ford Ranger, I was in the Ford Ranger plant and they were putting in the dashboards. I'm like, oh, where'd those dashboards come from? And they're like, oh, they build the dashboards in Mexico. And, and so there's a lot of foreign production that goes into quote unquote domestic cars. If that goes away, it's obviously going to raise the prices of the cars a lot. But the question is really uh, the definition of what is an American car that would qualify for NAFTA tariff preferences or the provisions of NAFTA are definitely something that's on the table. So, for example, I think in automobiles, this domestic content requirement is somewhere around 60%. So that 60% of the value of the car has to be produced in the United States, Canada, or Mexico in order to qualify as a North American good for free trade within North America, right? So if you, so that means that the Japanese and the Chinese now can't build a plant in Mexico, import a whole bunch of Chinese parts, put them together and say, oh, this is a Mexican car and then sell it to the United States in order to get special NAFTA tariff preferences. They can't do that. Uh, so, but I think we're revisiting that. So should we make it higher? I mean, if you made it higher, you'd require more of the production to happen within North America, which, you know, might be beneficial for North America uh, as a whole, right? In particular, it might be good for Mexico. Um, I think those are the main provisions I think that people are talking about. So the other, we focused mostly on NAFTA. The other big target as part of this anti free trade wave was the TPP. Right. And so could you talk a little bit about what is the TPP and is it are these same types of concerns with uh, NAFTA and trade-offs similar to TPP or since it's in a different market, it's not North, uh, North America, it's um, in the Pacific. And so are there, um, are there different sort of relative trade-offs about the cheaper labor and the same type of concerns we have with NAFTA or is it a different animal? No, surprisingly, they're very, very similar. There was a lot of discussion about whether or not the TPP would just supersede NAFTA because the United States and Mexico were both part of the TPP negotiations. And so when they were renegotiating, this agreement would supersede it and therefore NAFTA would become obsolete. Now, uh, people say they don't like TPP, but we're going to take a lot of the provisions that we negotiated in the TPP and fold them into the new NAFTA to update NAFTA. Uh, you got to wonder what the logic is, right? Whether or not it's really consistent. One of the big advantages of the TPP, and I, I want to mention this even though it might seem a little bit afield, is that our trade agreements actually, I think, are less about economics than they are about foreign policy. And George H.W. Bush, the founder of our school here, will really believe this. And he understood that NAFTA at its inception was about foreign policy rather than economic policy. We wanted to be closer to our neighbors. We wanted to have stronger ties with our neighbors. We wanted to have a good relationship with our neighbors. And that's what NAFTA was about, was bringing the United States, Mexico, and Canada together as better neighbors. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't as much about saying wages are going to increase or growth will happen. You know, they kind of said, you know, we expect there to be some growth, but, you know, it's really about being closer 
better neighbors. The TPP is much the same. It's much less of an economic agreement. When uh, in Washington, they were evaluating the possible economic effects of the TPP for the United States, and they were incredibly small. It was really about setting up the rules of trade for the Pacific so that hopefully in the longer run, China would start to adopt what we consider to be the best rules for trade. Now that the TPP is gone, we've left a huge vacuum in the Pacific. China was at the same time negotiating their own trade agreement with a lot of the same countries in the Pacific. And the big difference between the Chinese agreement and the U.S. agreement, and this is not at all disparaging on the Chinese, they totally have their way and that's fine. The Chinese way is the Chinese way, that's fine. But they don't See, they see it as an economic agreement. So they're not interested in harmonizing rules necessarily or trying to establish standards or benchmarks or any of the things the United States was pushing for, raising labor standards in developing countries, for example. The Chinese don't care about that, obviously. They just want to integrate economically and they're very powerful in their ability to do that. And now with the United States out of the TPP, this vacuum has created a huge opportunity for the Chinese then to set the tone and to dictate policy for trade in the Pacific, which I think in the longer run probably isn't going to be as good of an outcome as having more United States influence. And obviously I'm from the United States. I think our influence is good. I think we are the shining city on the hill. I think we have the potential for that. I think we've, we've really demonstrated a lot to the world and I think we should continue to do that. But uh, pulling out of the TPP is, is moving us in the opposite direction. That's something that might, might not have been a clear um, tie at first was this idea that's not just the domestic economic concerns, but also national security concerns and foreign policy concerns. I mean, as we, as you retreat from economic opportunity in that region, it just makes sense that you're also retreating from influence in that region. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's 100% correct, is that the more economic relationships you have, the more conversations you're having with people, the more you're able to discuss and resolve issues. You can resolve disputes. You have practice resolving economic disputes, which I think hopefully would make it easier to resolve security disputes. Uh, and you're right. I agree that, that the lack of our influence in that region is going to make it a lot more difficult to resolve disputes in the future in a way that we're going to be happy with. So... Um, what we, so there's NAFTA and then there was TPP. What other regions would, what other regions are there high barriers to trade with the U S are, are, so those are NAFTA is one where there's not high barriers to trade. We were sort of seeking out, uh, we were seeking out a trade agreement with the Pacific. What is the, what is the trade agreement or arrangements like with other parts, say with other parts of Latin America or with Africa? Are there other are there other trade agreements that might be either improved upon or targeted that just don't make their way into the popular discourse as much? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting is I think we've had about 16 free trade agreements since 2000, somewhere in there. And uh, we have free trade agreements with Jordan and a whole bunch of countries in the Middle East. Um, not the Middle East, but I mean, all around the world. Um, and the Big and the main answer to your question, of course, is uh, trade weighted or otherwise is China. I mean, we don't have a trade agreement with China. China is, you know, our, depending on kind of the measure, it's definitely the, you know, number two source of our imports. You know, I think it's even surpassing Canada. 
uh, now. So it might even be the number one source for imports. So the key thing is that it's, it's really China. We don't have a trade agreement with them. The rest of the world uh, that we trade with is basically Europe, Japan, and um, obviously we have really good relationships with those areas, but China is going to be the main contentious issue going forward. Okay, so the last thing that I would like for you to do, and then we'll wrap up the conversation, is putting on your uh, policy analyst hat. Mm -hmm. We've hit on these sort of at a couple different angles throughout the conversation, but lay out as plainly as you see them as a as someone who's looked particularly at NAFTA, but free trade broadly about the costs and the benefits and why the benefits win. Well, obviously trade theory tells us that the benefits are greater than the losses, but that doesn't help you if you're sitting in Detroit, right? So uh, it's really about trying to help people understand what's going on when they go to the store. Why are they able to afford those tomatoes? Why are they able to eat bananas? I mean, if we were to cut ourselves off and produce everything ourselves, where's the coffee gonna come from that you're drinking at Starbucks? Where's the bananas? Where are the bananas gonna come from? People are not thinking about that side of the coin. And so that's the one hand, like let's think about where the stuff we buy comes from and what would we wanna pay mm -hmm. if we're gonna get that stuff domestically, right? And so that would be really, really helpful for people to start thinking about that. Secondly, I think we also probably should be thinking about how can we do a better job at compensating the losers, right? I mean, if we have the ability and the resources to compensate the losers, whether or not they're in coal or any other industry, apparel, right? Or electronics. Apparel, electronics, whatever, even some degree automobiles, steel, mm -hmm. uh, taconite in northern Minnesota is a big one. You know, we could actually afford just to give these people their salaries for the rest until they would have retired. Basically, we have enough money to do that. It would be a lot more cost effective than having tariffs mm -hmm. in terms of the overall cost of the country. So can we think about being more generous with the people who are suffering at the hands of these types of policy decisions? So being let's be conscious of our benefits. They're huge. They're at the store. You see them all the time. And then how do we help the people who have lost much more effectively? I think those are the two key questions. Excellent. Thanks so much, Raymond. At the end of these conversations, I let you do any plug on your own website or social media or anything. Do you have a website or social media you'd like to share for anyone who might want to follow along with your work? can find you at the Bush School website. You can find me at the Bush School website. We're putting it up. We're putting together. Uh, yeah, we're working with the team here to get a, a revised website, both for the IDEP program and for my own personal page. Excellent. Thanks so much, Raymond. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Problems. These episodes can be found on iTunes Podcast, SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, and Pocket Casts, along with on our YouTube channel at Public Problems. You can find these episodes on any of these mediums by simply searching for Public Problems. We also are maintaining a Facebook page. It's at Public Problems Podcast. Here we are sharing more information about the podcasts and having a little bit of a discussion on current topics. We'll also be hosting an event in January called Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. This will be a public classroom learning experience that you can participate in. Simply find the event on our Facebook page 
and click that you're interested in participating. More information on that will be forthcoming in the next couple of months. Thanks again for your time, and we hope that you're enjoying the podcast. Have a nice day.